Well, we're back in Romans chapter 10 this morning, and I invite you to turn there as we continue on a long journey, a long answer to a big question, a question that Paul's been trying to address, which is basically why, if the Jews are God's chosen people, why are so few of them believing? How could God declare so much grace to a certain people and then so few of them respond might be another way of phrasing this. It was perplexing to the Jews and an obstacle to many of them in accepting his gospel. And Paul's answer is deep and it is long and there are some very rich truths and insights as we work our way through this because he wasn't content just to give a short answer. Well, that's just the way it is. That's just the way God wanted it. Instead, he is building for us an entire theological framework so that we can understand not only the rejection of Israel, but rejection of the gospel in general. Why people reject the truth? Why some people have so many obstacles to believing? He's building this by showing us First of all, that after God gave His promises to Abraham, not every Jew believed, not every person born, that is, from Abraham was a true child of God, but the Old Testament made it very obvious from the beginning with Ishmael and Isaac and then with Jacob and Esau that within God's people, that is Israel, there would always be unbelieving people. And by extension, many Jews throughout the Old Testament were not really the people of God, He has, as a matter of fact, only had a small remnant of people, a small remnant of Jews who truly believed throughout the history. This is nothing new. The state of Israel in Paul's day is nothing new. The state of Israel in our day is nothing new. It shouldn't be a surprise. This was what the Old Testament always said about the Jews. They were despite being the recipients of God's special favor, largely an unbelieving people. And the ultimate reason behind all this, as Paul, uh, you might say, digresses, is that God sovereignly ordained that it would be this way. He actually planned it this way, and so it's not as if God's word has failed or His promises have failed. This is just the way that He planned it so that it would bring the maximum glory to His name and the maximum exaltation to His mercy. But now, by God's sovereign grace and His election, that mercy is at work not only among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles. This is what Paul introduces, really, in verse 24, that this working of God, this calling of God is, is at work not only among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles. And, and they are being included along with the Jews, in God's plan of salvation. Now, Paul has made all these points basically just by observation, just by walking us through the history of the Old Testament, the history of God's people, the key text from Abraham to Moses and then later on into the prophets. He just made the points by just citing to us what the Old Testament has already said Point after point, he's been making these observations. But near the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, he moves from observation to explanation. He's beginning to describe now 
Not just that many Jews ended up not being elect, but he's beginning to explain that these many Jews, even though they were exposed to God's truth, even though they were exposed to a lot of the Bible, they still missed the truth. There was a uh, there was, you might say, a process involved in their rejection. They actually stumbled, he says, at the end of the chapter, over a stumbling stone. You know what a stumbling stone is. It's, a, it's not some big massive boulder that's in your pathway that you have to try to figure out how to get around. It is an unnoticed little thing that is easily avoided if you see it. But if you don't realize it there, it's there in your pathway, it causes you to trip up. So there was a stumbling stone, relatively small, but an obstacle nonetheless, because Israel didn't realize that it was there all along. And Paul establishes this by way of contrast near the end of the chapter. He says in verse 30 of chapter 9, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as it were, on the basis of works. He sets up this contrast. Faith, not works. They were pursuing it all along in the wrong way. And this is the essential explanation of why they failed. This is the essential explanation of why they're in the state that they're in. It was due ultimately to their misunderstanding of what God was looking for all along. And they stumbled over the simplicity of the gospel. Faith not works was what they failed to understand. Now, now he takes that, that theme, faith not works, and he basically expands that out in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the expansion of this explanation of what was going on in Israel. But before you really go there, it's important that you see clearly the contrast that he's making because a number of people, perhaps a majority of people who write on these verses or comment on these verses they miss the whole contrast. They see that Paul is calling for faith, but they don't see that Paul is condemning Israel's reliance on works. It is unpopular today to say such things. It's unpopular in modern scholarship and in the writing of commentaries to say that Israel built a system of self-righteousness, that they built a system of works-based righteousness. Bible students and Bible commentators pretend as if that never existed, that Paul never addressed it, that it was never an issue. And by extension, that it's not an issue today. That, that, that people don't really struggle with these kinds of things. That, that self-righteousness is some fabrication of some... Uh, uh, you might say, select group of Reformed theologians in the history of the church, but really has nothing to do with the Scripture. But very clearly, this is the contrast that Paul's making here. Israel did not pursue righteousness or eternal life by faith, but as it were, based on works. 
And in that way, they stumbled over the stumbling stone that should have been obvious to them in pursuing a self-righteous version of God's law. They failed to recognize what should have been obvious, which is their utter failure in keeping that law and their magnificent need for a Savior. That message is central to all of Israel's history. It is a central message of their history, and therefore it is a central message of the Bible. A central message, a central problem, we might say, of mankind. Self-righteousness is the chief stumbling block that trips people up in their pursuit of eternal life. It is the belief that you face no judgment, that you have no problem with God, that you are essentially good, that you are essentially righteous, at least as righteous as the next person. And if God is going to accept anyone, He's going to accept you. Even if you don't think of yourself as particularly religious, and you might see people around you who are pursuing religion and reading the Bible and going to church, even if you see all that, you still think of yourself as at least as good, if not better than them. And so you sit back in either some formal religious self-righteousness or some self Righteousness that is just a construction of your own worldview. And you stumble. You stumble over eternal life. But if you're going to enter into eternal life, you have to first face the problem of your self-righteousness. You have to first deal with the problem of your inner pride. You have to confess what every person has to confess which is that any good deed you've ever done is worthless to do anything for you before God. And that your only hope is a Savior who is Jesus Christ. You hear that less and less today, that your basic problem is self-righteousness. People would want you to think that your problem is your environment. Your problem is your circumstances. Your problem is the hand that was dealt to you in life. Your problem is your parents. Your problem is some chemical imbalance in you. Your problem is your marriage. Your problem is your job. Whatever it might be. But the Bible's clear. Your basic problem is you believe too much about yourself. You're self-righteous. And if you want to know the message of Scripture, that's the message. That was the problem of so many of the Jews. The problem that Paul is unfolding and confronting in these verses. Now Israel, we might say, was particularly self-righteous because it was expressed for them in a, in a kind of zeal. That's what Paul says in the opening verses of chapter 10. He says he has a, a longing and a prayer for them that they would be saved. For I bear them witness... That they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Their problem was not apathy. Their problem was not that they were unengaged. Their problem was not zeal. They had plenty of that. They had plenty of effort. Their problem was knowledge. It was understanding. They misunderstood the purposes of God's law. 
And they thought that it was supposed to establish and verify their own righteousness. And so they pursued a self-righteousness. And in doing that, Paul says, they stumbled, they misunderstood, and ultimately they failed to submit to God's righteousness. Now, as I said, that's what Paul goes on to unfold and confront in the rest of this chapter. Verses we'll be looking at today and, and uh, in a couple of weeks. But this is the way Paul explains their failure to submit to God's righteousness and how they should respond. He says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, bring Christ down, or descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now Paul, in writing those words, is challenging the self-deception of Israel. He's challenging their Unbelief, And in doing that, so he's really challenging every man and woman who continues in a pursuit of eternal life through your own goodness, through your own efforts, putting trust in your own righteousness. He's challenging you and he's challenging them to forsake all of the falsehood and to continue to cling to Christ, or I should say, to forsake all the falsehood and, and to cling to Christ. And in these verses, he's demonstrating how the gospel, the truth of the word that he preaches, undermines and exposes all of the false notions that you have about your righteousness, all of the obstacles that you have in your way for obtaining an eternal life. The gospel confronts and overturns all of them. First of all, in verses 4 and 5, he tells us this, that the truth of the gospel ends false hope in the law. The truth of the gospel ends false hope in the law. He says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now these verses, whether you realize it or not, verse 4 and even verse 5, are some of the most debated verses in all of Paul's writing. It may not strike you that way. The meaning, I think, should be pretty clear if we just pay attention to the conjunctions. Paul introduces verse 4 and in verse 5 with the explanatory word for. 
Verse 4, explaining how Israel did not understand and did not submit to God's law, for Christ is the end of the law. And in verse 5, he's explaining the righteousness that they didn't understand and submit to them. So, so, so one of them is explaining how, and one of them is explaining what. So if we just begin, we might say at the end of verse 3, by, by asking the question... When it says that they didn't submit to God's righteousness, we might just begin by saying, in what way did they not submit to God's righteousness? Well, verse 4, they didn't submit by simply not recognizing the end of the law. By simply not acknowledging the limitations of the law. They didn't submit by by recognizing that the law has these limitations, that the law has these ends. It was intended, the law was always intended, to lead you to a point of seeing your failure. To lead you to a point of being really at an end of yourself. It was designed to lead you to Christ. In the book of Galatians, Paul calls it a tutor or a schoolmaster that was supposed to lead you to Christ. That is its end. Kind of like school is supposed to have an end. You're not supposed to, you know, enter into high school and imagine that high school is the point. You're not supposed to stay in high school forever. You're supposed to realize that high school is preparing you for something beyond. It's dealing, you might say, it might even be exposing what you don't know and addressing what you do know. But really, it's not the point. It's not the end. The schoolmaster is supposed to lead you to prepare you for something else. That's Paul's point in Galatians. And God gave the law in order to make that clear. Instead of using the law, though, for its lawful purpose, Israel turned around and tried to use the law to establish their righteousness. Paul writes to the Galatian believers in chapter 3, he says, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If God had ever actually given a law that could do that, then you could legitimately pursue it that way. But the point is, no such law has ever been given. No religious system, no religious law can do that. No religious law can, on one hand, wipe away your sins, and on the other hand, make you acceptable to God. There's no law that can do that. No system that can do that. If such a law existed that was able to do that, then there's no need for Jesus Christ. But the law, in other words, as Paul says in Galatians, was intended to lead you to that conclusion. That you cannot do it. That you need not only your failures, your weaknesses, your sins, you need not only to have those things forgiven, but you also need someone to make you acceptable before God. And so, as Paul said all the way back in Romans chapter 8, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin 
in the flesh. Or as Paul says here in Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. He brings it to an end. Israel never believed that. They never realized that. They were ignorant of it, as he says at the beginning of the chapter. And so they wanted to stay under the tutor. They wanted to stay under the law. They wanted to remain there because they felt like it was achieving something for them. And so in this way, Israel never submitted to God's order of righteousness, God's structure in the law. That's, by the way, what the word submit means in verse 3. It is about aligning yourself under a certain order, under a certain taxonomy. Like a soldier who recognizes a chain of command above him, he recognizes the ordered structure that is in place, at least until he doesn't. And then what do we say? We say he's out of line. Well, the Jews were out of line. They weren't aligning themselves with God's standards of righteousness. They were out of line with what he was saying about it. They didn't want to line themselves up with the truth of what his word says. They weren't recognizing the structure. They weren't recognizing the standards that were in place. And what are those standards? Well, Paul gives it in verse 5. That the one, he says, the one who is does the commandments the one who obeys them perfectly he's the one who lives god's standard was conformity perfect conformity being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in the words of jesus and yet israel couldn't do it christ brought an end to all that He brought an end to all that misunderstanding. Brought an end to all that confusion, or at least should have. It's not that he does away with the law or in the sense that he abolishes it or, or uh, removes it as a part of God's word. But what he does is he ends the false hope that somehow, some way, you will make yourself good enough to be acceptable to God. He brings all that to an end. Or another way to say it is that in order to meet God's standard of righteousness, you have to first confess your utter failure to keep it. In order to meet God's standard of righteousness, you have to first confess your utter failure at it. That's how you submit to God's righteousness. That's how you submit to His standard. And that's what Paul's explaining in verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandment lives by them. That's the baseline understanding of God's righteousness. The law promises life if you can do it all, if you can keep it. But again, as Paul says in Galatians, if a law had been given that could give you life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, the law can't give you life. The law can't give you life. 
It won't do it. And this is what Paul's explaining. Law, the law clearly said that the person who does the commandments will live by them, but who's ever done that? Who's ever kept all the commandments? That's the key problem. And by Paul's day, by the way, is glaringly obvious. In fact, Paul quotes here from the book of Leviticus when God first gave the commandments to Israel, Leviticus 18.5. He gave this statement, do this and you will live. And, and some people have some doubts about whether Leviticus 18 really was ever intended to promise eternal life by keeping the commandments. They, they have doubt about whether it should be seen as a promise of righteousness by keeping the commandments. Or in the original context, they say, it maybe just is pointing people to the way they ought to live. It's not some sort of condition. If you do this, you will live. The grammar of the verse in the Hebrew is uncertain. But by the time Paul wrote, uh, forget about Leviticus for just a moment, by the time Paul wrote, it's obvious that the Jews of his day had come to understand Leviticus as a promise of eternal life. As a matter of fact, in the Babylonian Targum, uh, Targum, uh, it says this, records the verse in this way, You shall keep my statutes and the order of my judgments, which, if a man do, he shall live in them in the life of eternity. And his portion shall be with the just or the righteous. Israel understood Leviticus 18. And they knew it related to eternal life. They believed that they could keep it faithfully. That they could meet God's demands. And they ignored all the ways that they had failed. But Paul wasn't going to do that. He knew they had failed. He accepted the message of the Word of God. In fact, they should have known it. Ezekiel, the prophet, picks up this verse, Leviticus 18. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me over to Ezekiel 20. Because you'll see this. Ezekiel picks up Leviticus 18. And he uses it in a repeated refrain to drive home the fact of Israel's failure to keep the law and to obtain life. There in Leviticus, excuse me, in Ezekiel 20, if you look at verse 10, the Lord speaking through the prophet says this, So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them, and they might know me, that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which, if a person does them, he shall live. So if they had any doubt about what Leviticus 18.5 men, it should have been understood for them clearly 
through the prophet Ezekiel by this point. In fact, go down to verse 18. I, I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor define yourself with, uh, defile yourself with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. Keep my Sabbaths holy, so that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, were not careful to obey my rules, by which, if a person does them, he shall live. See, they shouldn't have had any doubt that whatever Leviticus 18.5 was talking about, they failed. They had utterly failed. In fact, this is especially poignant in light of how Ezekiel frames the issue of life and the issue of righteousness. I mean, this, this would take a couple of hours to really take you through all of the passages of Scripture. But, but just for a few moments, look back two chapters to Ezekiel 18 and just listen to the way that Ezekiel has framed up this whole issue of life. He says in Ezekiel 18.1, The word of the Lord came to me, What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall be no more be used uh, by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. Look at verse 5. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right... If he doesn't eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. And he goes through with a bunch of conditions. And you'll go down to verse 9. He walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Skip down to verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the son... Suffer for the iniquity of the Father when the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if the wicked person turns away, From all of his sins that he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does them what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. The whole chapter is just filled with language like that. A contrast. A contrast between righteousness and life and sin and death. Ezekiel's framing this up as not just an issue of having a blessed life. This isn't just an issue of having a prosperous life. This issue is an issue of righteousness. He connected life with righteousness. And the fact that Israel had failed to meet the standards that led to life should have indicated that they failed to meet the standard that is righteous. That should have, in other words, made obvious to them 
that they have no righteousness. The law should have communicated to them that they didn't have what they thought they had, which is a righteousness of their own. It's a message woven throughout the entirety of the law and throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. He says a few verses later in Deuteronomy 30. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. By the standard of the the, the, the law, Israel was called to choose life, but the problem is they never did because they never could keep the law. And Ezekiel says it was an indication that they didn't have righteousness. Paul is saying this is the conclusion you should have come to. Should have been obvious to you. Should have driven you to Christ. It should have ended all your false hopes that somehow you're going to stand before God and be acceptable. All of your failures, all of your sins, all of your weakness and following God's commands, all of those things were intended to communicate to you that you are not righteous, that you have no righteousness to commend you before God, and that you are utterly in despair. If you're here this morning, you ought to see the same thing in yourself. If you've spent any time trying to follow God, trying to please God, trying to conform your life to religious duties, trying to please parents who drug you to church, trying to please a wife, trying to please a husband who drags you to church or always beats you over the head with the Bible or whatever it might be, and you have made some efforts to try to conform to these religious duties in order to please people or even to gain eternal life, your failure should be obvious. And it ought to point you to Christ. But just like the Jews, people don't want to admit it. They don't want to accept the message. They don't like what it says about them. So what do they do? They make excuses. They shift the blame. Either to God Himself or even to the Bible. It's just too hard. It's just too difficult. All that religious stuff. Which, by the way, takes us to Paul's second point. The second obstacle that the truth of the gospel overturns, confronts. It eliminates excuses of difficulty or ignorance or whatever it might be. It eliminates those excuses. Paul does this back in Romans 10 by this ongoing contrast Between what the law says, do this and live, and what the gospel says, which he sort of personifies as speaking. The righteousness based on faith says, and he begins with a negative statement, telling us what it doesn't say, first of all. It's obvious it doesn't say the same thing that the law of righteousness says, do this and live, but it also tells us. In verse 6, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now that's a quotation from the Old Testament as well. In fact, it's out of Deuteronomy 30 where I just quoted. Right in the section that repeatedly tells Israel to choose life. Choose life. You can see why Paul made this connection in his mind. He's 
he's quoting to them out of these key passages that are talking about life, eternal life, and telling them that they have failed to do it. In fact, over in Deuteronomy 30, I can just read to you from that monumental chapter. It comes in a conclusion of Moses' life and Moses' address to Israel. And he's presenting to them as sort of the final note of the covenant, the blessings and the curses, blessings if they obey, curses if they do not. And then Moses basically tells them after saying all of that, that you will fail to obey. He tells them they will find themselves cursed, driven into exile. And so he begins Deuteronomy 30 with this in verse 1. When these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice, all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and He'll gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If, you are, if you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there He'll take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into, your land, into the land that your fathers possessed and you will possess it. And He'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So He's basically saying, look, you got these blessings, you got these curses, and you're going to find yourself cursed. And you're going to find yourself scattered. And you're going to find yourselves all throughout nations beyond uh, uh, the, 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 probably the edges of what you know to the very reaches of heaven, he says, as a, a way of talking about the far-flung places of the universe. God's going to bring you back. He's going to restore you from there, he says. He doesn't just talk about material blessings. He talks about even a spiritual renewal in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. You won't have life because you fail. But I'll work among you and bring it to you. And you have this theme, once again, of life. But notice what God says to them in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, He will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. In other words, God anticipated their failure, but He also anticipated their excuses. He anticipated their failure, but He anticipated the fact that they would shift the blame for all of their rebellion against God to other things. 
They would say the commandment is too hard. That God's word is too hard. That this religious stuff is too hard. And so he wants to clarify to them again and again, it's not too hard. The problem is not that the commandment is too hard. The problem is that your heart is too hard. When God says do not steal, the problem is that it's not that difficult to obey that commandment. The problem is your heart doesn't want to obey it. When God says, do not lie, the problem is not that the commandment is difficult. The problem is that you don't want to obey it. And this is what God was emphasizing to them. The problem is not with the commandment. The problem is with you. You remember, this is what Paul was saying in Romans 7 when he was describing the failure, his own failure before the law. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under to sin. This is what Paul says. The law is good. The law is spiritual. There's no problem with the law. There's no problem with the commandment. The problem is with you. People don't want to admit it. And so what happens? You drag them to church. You bring them close to religion. You get them around Christians and around spiritual people. And they run away. Because they begin to think, man, that's too hard. That, that stuff's too difficult. All that religious stuff just requires so much effort. And it requires you know, so, much, uh, so much investment. It takes too much commitment. It takes all of these things. The problem is it's just so hard. Not really. Is it that hard not to lie? Is it that hard not to commit adultery? Is it that hard not to steal? Is it that hard not to have an inflated view of yourself and pride? Is it that hard? No. See, the problem is not the law. The problem is you. Doing the commandment doesn't take that much effort. What's hard is that your heart is rebellious. Or don't begin to say, he says in in Deuteronomy 30, don't begin to say it's too far off. If God would just let me know what he wants to do, I want to obey God, I want to follow God. If he just let me know what he wants me to do, I'll be glad to do it. I don't know about all all that religion, I don't know about going to church, but, but you know, God's will just seems like a big mystery to me. I mean, there's all these debates, there's all these different camps, there's all these different uh, factions within Christianity. I don't even know which one to do. The problem is that if God would just make it clear what He wants me to do, that's the problem. It's, it's hidden. It's somehow a mystery. Well, God says, no, that's not the problem. The problem is not that it's far off it's near 
fact, he says this in the very end of Deuteronomy 29, right before you get to Deuteronomy 30, the secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children so that we may do all the words of the law. God has revealed very clearly His Word so that you can do it. Israel didn't want to accept that. And so they turned away from God's Word. They turned to other sources of truth. They turned to other sources of revelation. They turned to idols. They turned to false gods, to false places of truth. This is probably what Moses had in mind when he writes, it's not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven and bring it down to us that we may hear it. You don't need some other God to give you some other revelation. And neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it. You don't need the gods of other nations. You don't need to go and seek out their answers. You don't need the answers of the world. You don't need the world's pundits and the world's experts. You don't need all that stuff. The point is, don't make excuses. You don't need more answers. You don't need more information. You don't need more revelation. What you need is to listen to what God has already said to you. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, See, I've set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandment of the Lord that I command you today by loving the Lord, By walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments, His statutes, and His rules, and you will live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land where you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them. I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You will not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. It's clear. Just choose life. Just do the right thing. Just obey all the commandments. They're not hard. But your heart is hard. That's the problem. God's given you a command and you can't keep it. And you don't want to face it. You don't want to acknowledge it. Now Paul picks all of this up in Romans chapter 10 and he's telling us that through the gospel God's saying the same thing to you. He's telling you, you don't need another Savior, you don't need another Christ, you don't need another Gospel. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. He's already come. Or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's already been raised. But what do you say? The Word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. You've heard the truth. 
And God will hold you accountable for it. You will have no excuse. You don't need another authority. You don't need another sacred writing. You don't need another teacher. You don't need any of that stuff. What you need is to listen. Listen to what God is saying to you. And He's saying very clearly, you have failed. You failed to obey Him. You have failed to meet His standard. You have failed to gain eternal life. You need forgiveness. You need life. New life. A circumcised heart. A new heart. And Jesus provides all that. So as Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. There it is. It's simple. It's simple. All you have to do is confess. That's the word we proclaim. That's the word we implore you to hear today and respond to. You can do that as we close in a word of prayer and a song here. I'll be down front. I always am. I encourage you to come find me. I'd love to share with you exactly how this forgiveness and this new life comes to you through Christ. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your tender mercies. As we hear the law, as we hear the word, we know that we have failed in nearly every point. Lord, we know that our sins mount up to heaven. And no good righteous deed that we have done will undo any of that. So Lord, we're grateful for our Savior. We're thankful for His forgiveness. We're thankful for the cross that has brought to us life and salvation. We bless You, Lord. We gladly confess Him as Lord. We gladly receive into our heart the truth of His resurrection. And we pray for any who are here today who have been living behind those excuses who've been lying to themselves and saying that religion is too hard, that the gospel is too hard, that your word is too hard. Lord, may you help them to surrender and see the hardness of their own heart. May they open themselves to you and find salvation. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.